In his word, God speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 24. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. They are, they are a tough crowd, Ben. You're right. Uh, I was afraid Ben was going to preach the announcements and I wasn't going to have time to preach God's word, but I'm, I'm blessed that I get to be here with you. Um, my name's Kevin, and I am happy and delighted to be here with you guys. I love coming to Shawnee. I love the spirit that's in this place. I love the warmth, the joy, the zeal, and I'm always humbled to get to be here with you. And I love your pastors. Um, yeah, so thanks, thanks for letting me be here and preach God's word to you. Before we pray, I just want to show you a photograph, and I want to ask us to pray together. Now, I, I suspect that many of you in this room know way more about this photograph than I do, and some of you don't know anything about this photograph. This is taken in the chapel of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, where students have been praying and worshiping and confessing sins and reading the scriptures since Wednesday morning. Their chapel has never concluded. Um, And what we've seen throughout the history of God's work among God's people is the Spirit of God moves to awaken um, like awe at the holiness of God, zeal for the mission of God, a desire to repent, to celebrate the goodness of God. And this is happening right now as we speak. They're like 80 hours in in Wilmore to the point now that people are driving, like taking off work to drive to just be present and ask God to do more. I show that to you because um, I pray for revival regularly in our church. And I pray for revival regularly at OBU. And what would it look like if God would see fit in his mercy to stir the waters of our souls in this kind of way and see this kind of work spread across the country, not emotionalism, but a deep awakening to the truth and power and beauty and majesty of the Most High God. I wanted you to see that because I wanted you to pray for the students at Asbury University. And I want us to be so bold, if we would, to ask that God would move in similar ways here. Will you guys pray that with me? Let's, um, let's just pray for a second and then uh, we'll get into the preaching of God's word. So Holy Spirit, this isn't perfunctory for me in this moment. I actually want to ask that you would let us experience an awakening like these people are providing testimony of in Kentucky. Would you let us hunger for your glory? Would you let us see your holiness and your majesty? Would you bring us into deeper contact with the reality of your love? 
It's part, it's part of my sermon here this morning that we would actually experience the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. Spirit of the living God, would you move right here, right now? Not in a way that we could control or manipulate, but in a way in which you humble us. God, I love that it's, um, so we look at photographs, whether they're in Mumbai or Kentucky. It's not as if we have to say, well, when you finish there, could you come here? Because you can do it all. There's no place we can go to escape your presence. What we're asking for, living God, is your manifest presence. Would you heal? Would you deliver us? Deliver maybe even people in this room specifically this morning from bondage, addiction, demonic affliction. God, would you take our paltry, small faith and would you do something more than we could ask or imagine with it? I pray for the future of Shawnee, the future of the state of Oklahoma, that we would look back, God, should Jesus tarry and say in 2023, a small group of the people of God asked him to move and he did. Give us the courage to wait, the patience and the faith to obey you in the midst of the waiting. And would you move, God, in unprecedented ways in our time? And would you move in unprecedented ways, I ask this morning, in the reading and the preaching of your word? So help me now to be faithful. Give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive. I ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Hey, it really is good to be with you. It's always fun to drive to Shawnee early in the morning until it's not, right? You get to marvel at the beautiful sunrise until the sunrise becomes murderous in its beauty um, and you wish you were driving another direction. But I'm, I'm loving being here with you. And uh, if you're new with us this morning or if you've been away for a couple of weeks, let me bring you up to speed of what we're doing to make sense of where we're at and how we're kind of concluding a small series in the midst of a large series. We've been preaching 1 Corinthians essentially since I moved to Oklahoma last fall. We took a break for Advent and then we we dove back into 1 Corinthians and then we've kind of fast forwarded to the end to take a focused look at What does it mean to be men of virtue? What do we need God to do among the men in our body to cultivate a new kind of strength, a new kind of holiness, a new kind of fervor, a new kind of joy? So we've fast forwarded to the conclusion of Paul's letter and we've spoken specifically to men about men in the midst of the Sunday gatherings. And some of you have said, well, man, this is a a conclusion written to a church. This is for all people. Of course it is. And we can benefit from every single word that's written in the scriptures. But Paul addresses men here specifically. And you're like, why why do you think he's, he's addressing men specifically? I'm like, well, I think that because he says, act like men. And I don't think he would tell women to act like men. So he addresses individuals in this passage. He addresses the corporate church. He addresses groups within the church. And in this moment in verses 13 and 14, he addresses men. Now this can benefit all of us. 
And, I, and I'm already hearing the ways in which this has benefited you specifically. Ways in which you guys have been encouraged and challenged. Ways in which women, you're honoring the work of God in the lives of your brothers, either like describing God's faithfulness in their life, honoring growth and courage in these men, and that's beautiful. And we're, we're asking God to do more as we kind of land the plane this week. We'll actually finish the conclusion of 1 Corinthians and then go back to chapter, is it 8 next week, Ben? You guys are in chapter 8? Um, so you guys will kind of rewind back to 8 in next Sunday, and then we'll, we'll press on in 1 Corinthians through Easter. Does that sound like a plan? Everybody with me? Okay. Well, um, man, I'll, just, I'll just say this um, before we before, like, really dive in. I, I'm praying that this kind of work will, in visible and tangible ways, do the gender-redeeming work we're asking God to do by nature of like our values as a church. We, we would see men and women relate to one another differently. Men and women relate to God differently. Us challenge and rebuke and exhort and encourage one another differently because of this word. Um, I'm, I'm zealous for that. And it's not like our focus on men's focused discipleship and women's focused discipleship will end when this series ends. But this will just be a way for us to put a stamp on what we've done the last two weeks and move forward with what God's doing in our church going forward. The focus this morning, if you've been with us the last two weeks, is verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 16. I'll just read it to you again, and then I'll tell you why I wanted it set in the broader context of the entire closing. Paul says, having said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, verse 13. In verse 14 he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now this is, a, this is a tectonic statement. This isn't Paul just saying, be kind to one another. It's something way deeper than that. When I was a little kid, and my mom's in this room so she can check me if I'm being dishonest. When I was a little kid, my mom had this thing she did all the time when she dropped us off for places. I don't know if she was trying to encourage us or embarrass us, or maybe she was doing both, but when she would drop us off places, she would roll down the window and yell out the window before we left, be sweet. Fair. Fair. Um, and, like, I, I don't want you to hear that that's what the, Paul's doing here. Paul isn't rolling down the window to the Corinthians and as he drives away saying, be sweet. He's actually talking about love as a philosophy of being. He's saying, I want you to take that which is loving and I want it to control and shape and energize and direct the totality of the way in which you function. So I want us to dig down in the conclusion because what Paul does with this tectonic statement is he actually gives us two more tectonic earth foundational statements about love. If you look ahead to verse 22, Paul says this jarring statement about love. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he closes this letter, verse 24, with another tectonic statement about love. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So as we end our time in this short series, what I want us to do today is I actually want us to hear and unpack these three tectonic statements about love. 
The first tectonic statement we see is in verse 14. Let all you do be done in love. And I want us to see that as Paul telling us that love is functioning for us or should function for us as the people of God as a philosophy of ministry or even deeper, a philosophy of being. And then he explains this, I mean, throughout this closing, you can preach so many sermons from like final greetings in Paul's letters, they're amazing, but I just want to highlight two things he shows us about love. In verse 22, he shows us that love tells the truth. Love tells the truth. And in verse 24, he shows us that love stays connected in conflict. So those are the three things I want us to meditate on and unpack this morning. I want us to talk about love as a philosophy of being. I want us to talk about how love tells the truth. And I want us to talk about how love stays connected in conflict. So let's look at the first one. Love is a philosophy of being. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Now that's, that's a sweeping statement, right? That's a comprehensive statement. Paul's not saying let some of the things you do be guided by love. He said let Everything you do, the totality of your existence, Paul says, let it be governed by, structured around, operated according to love. Now think about this. If Paul's going to tell you something that comprehensive, it's not as if he said this in a vacuum about what love is or what love does. He's already talked to the Corinthians about what love is and what love does. If you rewind back to chapter 8, he talks about how love functions in the context of knowledge. It's very important. He says knowledge puffs up, but love enables us to operate in a way that transcends arrogance. And he does that specifically in context for like how we navigate food offered to idols, which Ben is going to pick up for you in God's providence next week. So he said how, how love operates in the realm of knowledge. But if you look at chapter 13, if you turn in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians, Paul has given the Corinthians the archetypal sermon and exposition on love already. So when he tells them in chapter 16 to let everything they do be guided by love, he's not speaking in a vacuum. He's already told them what love is and what love does. And I just want to read with you for a second the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 13, if you'll indulge me. Because though this may sound great at your wedding, Paul's actually telling us something beyond a wedding homily in these verses. He's talking about how the people of God function as the body of Christ, navigating conflict as we minister the gifts of Christ to one another. This is a church passage more than it is a wedding passage. Not that it's bad if you had it read at your wedding. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's just read together verses 1 to 8. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things and endures all things. Love never ends. Do do you understand that Paul, when he says, let everything you do be done in love, he has this framework operating for them. And he's, he's trying to help the Corinthians, and specifically, let's think, brothers, this morning about ourselves. He's trying to help men understand that without love, we are a jarring distraction. You know what a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal is? I mean, imagine the comedic effect of someone being in this room right now with giant crash cymbals like a marching band. And not in sync with anything else, but just on their own whim. Have you ever been with people that do that? You you don't hang out with people that do that. It's, It's jarring. Paul says, hey, doesn't matter how much you know. Doesn't matter how much power you possess in spiritual realms. Doesn't matter how generous you are, how zealous you are, how radical you are. If you operate without love, you're like a jarring distraction. You're like somebody in the midst of something significant happened, just smashing those symbols together. He goes on. He says, hey, it doesn't matter how much strength you have, how much wisdom you have, how effective you are in ministry. If you don't have love, you gain nothing. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how talented you are, how recognized and affirmed you are by others. If you don't have love, you are nothing. So when Paul says, let everything you do be done in love, he's telling us that, men, because anything we do in the absence of love, listen to me, is nothing. Anything we do in the absence of love is distracting at best and destructive at worst. When Paul says, let everything you do be done in love, he's not talking about some sort of seasoning that you add to the top of something. Which I'm devastated to say how much of my life I looked at leadership and masculinity and ministry and knowledge and everything and thought love was just something you sprinkle on the top of that. Like, man, you can be a leader, but if you want to be a great leader, you know, add a dash of love to that and you're a great leader. You can be an intelligent person, but I mean, if you want to be a dynamic genius, just sprinkle some love on the top of your knowledge and you can be, you know, world changing. Paul says, no, no, no. Unless love is at the core of it all, it is distracting at best and destructive at worst. So men, as you think specifically about your life, your gifts, your passion, your leadership, your calling, the way in which you relate to other people, when Paul says, let everything you do be done in love, he is describing a comprehensive way of being for you, not something else you add to the top 
like if you want to move your life from a B plus to an A minus or an A plus. He's saying, apart from love, you have nothing. And then look in verse, where is it, 8. No, look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. When Paul says, let everything you do be done in love, he's talking about that. Now think about this. People are difficult to bear. Can I get an amen? Like, nice people are difficult to bear, and I happen to be a difficult person. Difficult people are incredibly difficult to bear, and the greatest humans we know are difficult to bear. But Paul says that's what love does, is it bears all things. What, what love does is love believes all things. And what Paul means is love believes the best about someone even when given opportunity to do otherwise. Hey, how often, men, do you find yourself operating in judgment and condemnation because quite the opposite of believing the best about someone, you presume to be God and have the ability to interpret all their motives? We well, did this for this reason, and this reason, and this reason. And this makes him a terrible person or her a terrible person. And I will stand on my mighty loft of righteousness and judge them. Paul says that's not what love does. Love believes the best about someone when given opportunity to do otherwise. I had a dear friend say to me years ago, I believe the best about people until I experience the worst in them. I was like, well, that, that's not believing the best about someone at all. The only time you need to believe the best about someone is when you experience the worst from them. And to believe the best until you experience the worst is not only tragic, it's a chaotic view of life. Paul says love bears all things, believes all things, even when you're given reason not to. And it goes beyond that. It hopes all things. So brothers, even when we are mistreated, sinned against, betrayed, judged wrongly, interpreted negatively, even then, even then, love hopes for the best in all things. And that doesn't mean that you're naive or that you're covering your eyes and running around blindly. It means even when I endure wrong, I can hope for God to redeem that by his grace and redeem people by their grace because by his grace because love doesn't just bear believe and hope love endures all things that's what love does Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 9 that love should be genuine it has to be sincere so it means it's not just like an act you put on or love is some kind of Christian means of gritting your teeth so as we land this plane thinking about biblical masculinity and masculine virtue according to God's word, when we've talked about being watchmen, standing firm in the faith, when we've talked about being, like, acting like men and being courageous, Paul says none of that means anything. And in fact, none of that is possible unless we operate as men according to a comprehensive ethic of and a comprehensive philosophy of love. Love is a practical, self-sacrificial commitment to the good of other people, to the interests of other people, and the benefit of others even above my own. 
And like, I just thought this week about how love needs to direct our affections. If we're gonna do everything we do according to love, love needs to direct our affections. It needs to shape the strategies by which we make meaning out of the world. Love needs to form the structures of our thought and it needs to guide our behaviors. Love has to direct everything. And brothers, it's critical for us to hear this in the presence of women. Love is not merely a feminine thing. It's almost as if men are lazy and want to set love in the same odd bucket that we put emotions and be like, well, that's for women to deal with. I deal with these things and I let moms figure that out or I let ladies figure that out as if love is less than masculine. But love is quintessentially masculine. In fact, masculinity is impossible as it's created and oriented and defined apart from love. Love grounds masculinity. Love orients masculinity. Love activates masculinity. Love animates masculinity. Love dignifies masculinity. And love elevates masculinity because love grounds and activates and animates and dignifies and elevates everything. These guys are like, did you catch those notes? You want me to tell them to you again? I'll tell them to you again. Love grounds masculinity. We're not in a class. I want you to hear the heart of God for you, not get all the notes for you, but I'll give you the point. Love grounds masculinity. It activates masculinity. It animates masculinity. It orients masculinity. It dignifies masculinity. It elevates masculinity because love does all of those things for everything. See, I spent a lot of time praying for us this week, and I found myself asking God the question, God, what soil does love grow in? Because I wanted to make specific exhortations to say, hey, think about these places in which love grows. And then as I meditated on God's word and prayed for all of us as the people of God, I realized that it's, it's not like we need to look for the soil that love grows in. Instead, we need to realize that everything virtuous grows in the soil of love. Love is the soil that everything glorious grows in. So you want to cultivate your life as a man. You want to cultivate truth, integrity, honor in your life. That grows in the soil of love. Now, lest we think when Paul says, let everything you do be done in love, lest we think that Paul's saying, just be glib and just be sentimental and just cover over the hard things. We see in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that love speaks the truth even when it's jolting and jarring and, and complicated. Look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 16. And in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul does something that he hasn't done to this point. To this point in his letter to the church at Corinth, he's been dictating. He's had a scribe or a secretary or a personal assistant taking notes for him. And he said, hey, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this. And now as he comes to the end of his letter, he's like, hey, Sosthenes, or whatever his scribe's name was, give me the pen. I want to finish the letter myself. And he says, I, Paul, write this to you in my own hands so that when the Corinthians received it, they could go, Wow, this isn't just some fabrication. This is God's word to us given through the hands of the Apostle Paul. This is authentic. This is real. And right after Paul writes that, the next thing he writes is, verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, 
Let him be accursed. Whoa. Hey, this is jarring. In no other letter, in no other letter that Paul writes, does he include in his final greetings a curse. That's, that's a lot. Some people think, well, this is a formula that Paul's given them to ban people from communion when they actually fence the table and say, this is for Christians only. Other people have said, this is Paul chastising those at Corinth that were violating or disagreeing with his teaching. Other people said, no, 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 this is Paul kind of poking his finger in the eyes of self-righteous religious people that were pretending to be Christians. But I actually think we need to let the statement be as sweeping and as shocking and as significant and seismic as it is. Paul is literally saying, hey, if you do not love Jesus, it's not that something happens because you don't love him. It's that something is already true of you. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no one else to bear the curse for you for your sin. Paul doesn't throw this around lightly, but he uses the same kind of language, right? In Galatians, he says, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to what I've given to you, if even an angel shows up and tells you something contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been given to me, let a curse be on him. But, but don't think that Paul is saying this because he hates the Corinthians. He's saying this because he loves them and you. He's not saying this because he's angry at them. He's saying this because he loves them and you. The crazy thing about love is it doesn't cover over or paper over the hard edges of reality. It actually presents them with grace and doesn't try to poke your eyes out with them, but just says, hey, let everything be done in love. Let, let chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians guide your life. Let it motivate the way you think, what you love, how you make sense of the world, how you arrange your life, everything that you do with your hands, think with your mind, say with your mouth. Let love drive everything. And the love that drives that actually requires you to speak the truth. And, and I'm sympathetic, like if you're here this morning and you're a visitor to Frontline or you're like, you're not even a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, seriously, I got out of bed on Super Bowl Sunday and I got a guy with a gigantic head telling me that if, I'm, if I don't love Lord, Lord Jesus, I'm accursed. Yeah. That's a weighty thing. It's a weighty thing whether you love Jesus or whether you don't. Could we take seriously the fact that apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the only way we will experience God is through his wrath and his judgment. And it would be unloving to you to say anything else. That's why Paul can uphold his exhortation in verse 14 and say what he says in verse 22. Love tells the truth. Now here's what's tragic for me. It doesn't have to be tragic for you. So many years of my life, so many years of my life, so many years of my ministry, I took this center piece of this crazy tectonic thing Paul says about love. If he closes his letter with three tectonic statements about love, verse 14, 
verse 22 and verse 24. I took verse 22 as if it was the only thing Paul said about love. They're like, hey, you need to understand that anyone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus is accursed. And I wanted to preach the gospel with clarity, with purity, with fervor, with zeal. And I did. And I did. But if you, if you hold on to verse 22 in the absence of verse 14, Paul has already told you in chapter 13, your words are nothing. If you tell the truth with zeal and theological clarity and precision and witty illustrations, but have not love, you are nothing. You gain nothing. You're, you're like a, someone idiot, idiotically crashing symbols, and you're like, man, I nailed it. I told the truth. I didn't back down. I wasn't governed by fear. And like, you're right. But if you're not governed by love, your courage is only destructive. If you're not governed by love, your courage is only destructive. Distracting at best, destructive six of the other seven days of the week. And, and, and I heard verse 22 without letting verse 14 be the way in which I understood verse 22. Check this out. There will be some of you that that's not your struggle. That's not your struggle. You're like, no, I, I, I can hear verse 14 and I can let that be the controlling reality for me. And I can let verse 14 be the, the means by which I speak the truth because love does speak the truth but then you have trouble staying connected with people that you're in disagreement with or in conflict with. And look at verse 24. Paul says this, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now at the end of this letter, which keep in mind, in this letter, Paul has disagreed with the Corinthians on almost every issue. Paul has taken them to task on almost every issue. Paul has many complaints with these people and not just many disagreements with these people, but there are people in this church that are trying to turn the people of this church against Paul completely. And to all those people, Paul says, hey, not only do I tell you the truth about what it means to exist outside the love of Jesus Christ, I give you my love as well. I'm personally present with you. Paul is illustrating for us in verse 24 what he admonishes us to do in verse 14. When he says, let everything you do be done in love, here we see the last words he writes to the Corinthians saying, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Stop for a second, brothers and sisters, and think about who the you all is in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 16. I just tried to jot some of them down. For Paul at Corinth, the you all includes the ones that are setting up factions in the church and trying to divide it. It includes the ones who are relishing in sexual immorality. It includes the ones who are getting drunk and mistreating the poor in communion. It includes the ones who are cursing Paul and undermining his authority. It includes the one who are blessing Paul and have sacrificed for him. It includes the ones who said they're gonna stand up for Paul and in the face of disagreement have cowered and joined the factions that are trying to destroy him. 
Paul says, my love be with all of you. He says, let everything you do be governed by love. And understand that that doesn't mean you're silent in matters of terrifying, jarring, sharp, jagged-edged truth. Love tells the truth, Paul says. And then we see in this final verse from his pen to this church that love stays connected in the place of conflict. And the way that happens, obviously, is it happens in Christ. It's, it's Jesus that for Paul makes love possible, makes his love consistent, makes his love, like makes the presence of Paul's own body with them significant. And I just thought like Paul ends his letter not with clashing cymbals, not with a noisy gong. Paul ends his letter by sharing with these people the heart of the God he's laboring to see them shaped by. Hey, some men think for a second about what it means to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith. Think about what it means to act like a man, to take initiative, to take on responsibilities that require our own sacrifice. Think about what it means to be strong or be courageous. And then ask yourself, how does love shape all that? How does love orient all that? How does love animate all that? And then I want you to stop and think for a second about the unique ways in which men model lovelessness. Hey, brothers, think about uniquely masculine ways in which we fail to be loving. Which lovelessness is a sin, by the way. Lovelessness is a sin. For God's word to command us to let everything we do be done in love means any place we fail to operate in love, we're sinning. And when you think about masculine lovelessness, I would suspect most of us think about domination and the overuse of strength in terms of like force and bullying and something else. Which of course, if you're using the strength God has given you, to bully and mistreat others instead of to defend and protect them, that is lovelessness. And hey men, that's something we need to struggle with all the time. It's something we need to have eyes to see. It's something that we need to, we need to be aware of. It's something that we need to repent of often. It's something that we need to have others around us asking us to check our breath and be like, hey, am I heavy handed? Am I impatient? Do I use my strength, my like orientation as a watchman? Do I use my courage in a way that doesn't bless people? Could you help me see that? As men, we have to be fervent to see the excesses of strength as a sin of lovelessness, and we need to repent of that. But we also have to understand that abdication is loveless as well. Passivity is loveless as well. And I think in our moment, because we see men chastised and ridiculed for the overexertion of strength, anything that would approximate domination, we're like, well, I don't ever want to be called a dominating person, so I'm just going to take my hands off the wheel and do nothing. But brothers and sisters, you've got to hear this to men in their presence. For men to abdicate is loveless. Like I, I, I wish some of you would like be with me in this moment right now. Like for you to say, well, then I won't do anything if I'm just going to be criticized or if I run the risk of being chastised or demonized or villainized, then I'll just, I'll, I'll never do anything. But that's selfish. 
It's self-protective, which is loveless. Like I wonder, I wonder if in our moment, the strange sin of men that's just lurking to manifest itself and wreak havoc in society is abdication and passivity of an entirely new kind. But brothers, like it's worth, it's worth being criticized for overuse of your strength if in all that you do, you're laboring to do it in love. It's, it's, it's worth the risk of being criticized as a watchful person. It's worth being criticized as one who's standing firm in the faith. It's worth being criticized as one who acts like a man and takes initiative to the benefit of others. It's worth being criticized for being strong and courageous if you're letting everything you do be done in love. Man, I, I have a, a continually invigorated burden to call men not to just lay down the sword and go, fine. Hey, because men, for us to resign in that way in this moment is lovelessness of another kind. And so I, I just wanna close by asking you the question, where is lovelessness manifesting itself in your life right now? It's a real question. Take a second and ponder. Where is lovelessness manifesting itself in force and an ungodly, unloving expression of your strength? And where is lovelessness manifesting itself in abdication and passivity, self-protection, self-interested renunciation of your strength? What would it look like, men, for us to see the call to love with new eyes and new courage and new faith and to walk in it? And what would it look like for us to speak the truth in those places? Remain connected with those who we would be in conflict with and to walk in love, to walk in love, not to sit down for fear of being called loveless, which is loveless. I've just wondered what it would look like for you men in Shawnee to like pray and, and discuss together, hey, where do we need to see and pursue the love of God in our lives, in our church, in our community groups, among our peers, with our colleagues at work? Where do we need to grow in love? And where do we need to see and sever the roots of lovelessness? Where might that give the Spirit of God an opportunity to stir the waters of this place in similar, or dare we even ask, for more glorious ways than he's stirring the waters in Wilmore, Kentucky? God, would you, would you do a work in the men of this church? And by the way, ladies, I don't say that to exclude you. Like, my hope is whenever we're addressing a specific group at Frontline, whether we're talking to single people or married people, or dads, or moms, or men, or women, that the other groups in the room can go, hey, wait a minute, how do I hear this as a sister or a brother? How, how can I pray for and encourage and exhort those in the other group that's being addressed, knowing that you're gonna be addressed at another time? So ladies, as you hear these words, I want you asking, how can I exhort and encourage and challenge and honor men in our church to be men? 
How can you pray for them? But also, how can you hear the word of God and say, God, if that's what you say to men, what does that mean for me? And how can I apply this as a daughter of the Most High God who has responsibilities to act in love as well? It's not like the word to let all you do be done in love doesn't apply to you. But just because we're applying it to men doesn't mean that it doesn't have application for you. Ladies, what would that mean for you personally? And as you exhort and challenge the men around you to act like men around you, and as you honor them for acting like men around you. Two things I wanna say, and then I'm gonna be out of your way. In Romans chapter five, verse five, Paul says this. I'm just, let's just read it together. Sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't wanna misquote the Bible to you. Romans 5, 5. It's a longer passage. I'd love to read verse one to five for you, but I'm already over time. The Chiefs are gonna win the Super Bowl today. We've got stuff to do. Um, not a single amen for that. I think I'm done. My work here is done. After this, after this beautiful, beautiful um, focus about what justification by faith does and give us a peace to God, Paul says this, verse five, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, this is another sermon for another minute, but this is really important because you cannot walk in the love that Paul commends unless you've experienced the love that Jesus gives you. Like, you cannot walk in love as Paul commands or exhorts unless you've received the love that's offered to you in Jesus. And Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that this isn't something you just agree to as if it's just a proposition. He says, this isn't an idea, this is an experience. The reason why we're not gonna be put to shame as Christians is because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's saying there's something as a Christian that God gives you. Not just data, not just agreement. This is experience. It's the difference between ideas and watching something on a movie and actually experiencing something. Maybe some of you are bringing food to the the college party tonight. Do you realize how many times I've been told that I'm not welcome because I'm not a college student? Ben was preaching to me earlier. He's like, hey, this is for college, current college students. He's afraid I'm gonna come eat your food. But if you think about a recipe, whether you're cooking one tonight or not, there's a difference between reading a recipe about a dish in a book. And there's a difference between watching someone cook a dish on YouTube and eating it. There's a difference. And Paul says that what makes a Christian is not someone who reads about the love of God in a book. It's not someone who watches other people experience the love of God in whatever medium. It's someone who personally experiences the love of God through the Holy Spirit. You cannot walk in the love that Paul exhorts unless you've experienced the love that Jesus offers you. You, you cannot. And Jesus gives us a portrait of love in John 15. I'll read this for you and then I really will land the plane. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Kim, here's verse 14. You're my friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command you to do which the thing Jesus commands us to do throughout the Gospels is believe him, take him at his word, receive him for who he says he is. He says, this is who I am. 
This is why I came. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And what Jesus is telling his disciples and you and me is, I came to lay down my life for you. I came to show my love for you and to atone for your lovelessness. That's why Jesus died on the cross. The greatest act of love humanity has ever known to bear the punishment and the wrath for our lovelessness. Jesus says, my body lovingly broken for your lovelessness. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this represents my blood. Shed lovingly for your lovelessness. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. Hey, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're here this morning and you take Jesus at his word and you believe that he lived a perfectly loving life and died a sacrificial death to receive the penalty for your lovelessness and rose again victorious over sin, Satan, and death, if you believe that, then you're a Christian. And I invite you to come and celebrate communion with us this morning. If you're here and you don't know what you think about that, then don't take this meal. It's a meal of faith. It's not like it's a meal that's gonna satisfy hunger. There's nothing magic about it. We bought the bread at the grocery store and it's just cheap, cheap wine. You can attest if you've drank it. It's cheap wine and cheap juice. This isn't magic. This is a faith meal where we repent of our lovelessness. We celebrate the supreme act of love by the one whose name is love. If you trust Jesus, come and eat with us. And if you don't, I'd love to pray with you after the service. So would you stand with me now and we'll pray together? And whenever.